in dieser sich ändernden Welt, wie garantieren wir unsere Sicherheit? Wie schaffen wir es als Europäer, dafür zu sorgen, dass wir sicher leben können? Ce qui manque le plus à l'Europe aujourd'hui, à cette Europe de la défense, c'est une culture stratégique commune. The rise of China matters for all NATO allies. The Defense Café, a podcast by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. Hello and welcome to the Defense Café, the security and defense podcast of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation in Brussels. My name is Jeroen Dobber from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. And I am Theresa Reiter in Vienna. And today we will continue our conversation with Isabella Brunner, who we also had as a guest in the previous part of this podcast. And with her, we'll talk again about international law and cyber conflict. Isabella works as a researcher at the University of Vienna and is specialized on that topic. She's one of the leading experts in Austria. And in the previous part of our conversation, she already brought up a lot of interesting points about the applicability of international law to cyber conflicts, possibilities to have treaties and the mechanisms to deal with legal conflicts in the cybersphere. But today we will speak with Isabella about a number of other issues. Teresa, fill us in. We will talk to her about the lack of public debate on cyber conflict, cyber weapons, cyber defense, cyber offense. We will talk about her own way of looking at news that are related to cyber conflict, to cyber attacks, maybe. We, of course, asked her the famous animal question, to which she had an excellent answer. So here is Isabella again. So we discussed a lot about the legal setting. Now we're getting more to the response of society and democratic structures and stuff like this. So with nuclear weapons, we were able to have a debate in politics, right? We know which countries are in, in favor, are opposed, want treaties, support treaties, do this and that. We want our governments to not develop certain things, um, we know about these things. In the cybersphere, there is a giant hole where the public debate should be, right? So we don't even know what our own state's opinion is on, for example, the development of offensive cyber capabilities. And I believe this creates a lot of problems uh, for now and for the future. And would like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think... One major issue why um, there is not really much public debate about, for example, offensive cyber capabilities in states like Austria is because I'm not entirely sure if Austria has a fully fledged position on that itself. I mean, I'm not even sure if, if there are actually that many states who have a fully fledged position. But I mean, also, if you look at the United States, if you read reports or their papers on things, it is also not entirely clear what exactly they mean with offensive cyber capabilities. And so, as you're saying, there's a huge cloud, a very a blurred vision of what exactly we're talking about and what states are allowed to do, what states are developing at the moment, which capabilities they have. The only thing that we know is that there are increasingly states developing military capabilities in cyberspace. And I think another issue is that with nuclear weapons, we have this, you know, this picture of Hiroshima and, you know, the, the atomic bomb being put, being deployed, and we see the devastating consequences this has had on huge population. But with cyber, a lot of things things are hidden. We just know, okay, maybe there was a server breakdown, but we cannot fully un understand what exactly happened. Um, also with the Austrian, with the cyber attack against the foreign ministry, there was not really much information about that going on. And I think that is also because states are, I think, 
I'm not talking about Austria, but in general, I think states are afraid of showing their weaknesses or their weak links. And that makes it more difficult to, to show where, where the discussion should take place and what to do about it. But it would definitely be great if we had a more public discussion about this issue. Another, I think, something that hinders people to talk about this is perhaps also the fear that they do not have the important technical knowledge about these issues. Because with nuclear weapons, again, I mean, you can you can imagine this weapon, but what about malware? I mean, how does it look like? How do we know that it's harmful, etc.? So, and that I think bars a lot of people to talk about this this issue. Mm -hmm. But couldn't you imagine it as the same thing? Because malware um, could trigger some kind of nuclear incident. I mean, this is the worst worst case scenario, right? But as we have seen in our group when we discuss about it, like. What is the worst thing you can imagine what keeps you up at night that could happen than it is like a mm. nuclear incident being triggered by a cyber operation? So I don't really understand actually why we think differently yeah. about these things, because also with nuclear stuff, there is uh, obviously there are lower levels of nuclear incidents that are not Hiroshima scenario. And we're still talking about it because of Hiroshima scenarios. We could still say like, okay, this is the same thing. Yeah. Or it could potentially be the same thing, right? Yeah. And I think that's exactly where the difference is because this one thing, Hiroshima, did happen and this other thing could potentially happen. But at the moment, what we only see is ransomware attacks or, you know, small scale operations that perhaps have economic damages as to the consequence, but do not go beyond that. But obviously it can go beyond that, but I'm not sure if it is fully understood by everyone. And I think someone said something really great that in order for society to react to something, something has to happen before. And that's exactly the danger about this whole thing, that society starts talking about things that have happened, but do not talk about things that could potentially happen. Is there is there also a problem there, you think, with the democratic legitimacy of cyber operations of our own governments there? Because here we're talking a lot about things that could happen to us, but what about the operations that happen in our name or on, be, on our behalf? Is there an issue there as well, you think? Yeah, sure. I mean, with respect to, I mean, I can only always talk about Austria. I'm not sure if Austria really has operations uh, or is undertaking operations itself. But yeah, I mean, definitely, I think a reason why the Snowden revelations were so huge, because these revealed that the United States is spying not only on its own citizens, but also on citizens abroad and even government officials, etc. And I think that is also one major reason why a lot of this is confidential, because you release it to the public. I mean, there are a lot of I would say there could be some revelations that are not that great for everyone. A lot of collateral uh, potential here for collateral. I was also thinking, because you said countries are, are reluctant to have a position on that, right? So the only way they would feel forced to have a position is if politicians would feel pressure from the voter. And for that, again, you need the public debate, because otherwise the voter doesn't even know that he or she is supposed to <laughs> ask about this. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking like, maybe this is also a reason why they're keeping the public debate down a little bit and do not talk too much about it. I mean, in the case of Austria, we know that our military is um, not very 
well financed. And I mean, I'm not that worried that our military at the moment is working out uh, brilliant offensive capabilities in the cybersphere. But for example, I mean, we are in a European Union. We have the French have openly said that they are working on offensive capabilities. The British do as well. They said they use it against actors like the Islamic State or something. But all we know is what they tell us, right? So mm-hmm. we in Austria, even though we ourselves are maybe not developing it, we might have to have an opinion on it because we are in a European Union with other actors that might develop something or are definitely develop something. So true. But I think also with respect to smaller countries in government, I believe, I'm not talking about Austria now, <laughs> I'm talking in general about but smaller countries with less capabilities. I think there at the moment, I think many of them are currently in the process of establishing cyber units. So they are really fresh, starting fresh and uh, that's I think is also one reason why there's not really much debate about it because the government officials themselves currently only in the process of finding out what to do about these things and, and how to cope with them. But I mean, luckily, I would say things are getting better. And I think they have been pushed with this discussion that is going on at the UN level, that states have been kind of forced to at least present their own views about how international law applies in cyberspace. So we have the United Kingdom that has come forward. We have Germany, we have Switzerland, Israel. France, New Zealand, and many other states who have actually come forward to explain their own positions about international law. And even though that might not be known to a lot of people in the the public, so, you know, civilians, etc., at least this is something that is currently increasingly being known to at least the other government officials, and we're starting to have a more international cooperation in this field, which encourages, again, other states to come forward and also explain their own positions. And maybe one day Austria will also have its position on international law and cyberspace. Um, At the moment, this is not the case. There's the case of Estonia, for instance, where in 2007 they had a massive cyber attack launched against them. And ever since, they've been strong proponents of, uh, of having strong cyber defense. To make the topic more present in the public sphere, do we need a big attack like that, a big moment just to to make sure that it's on people's radar? Or are there other ways to make it more present? That's a really good point. And I was hoping that the uh, attack against the Austrian foreign ministry would kind of be the catalyst for that, for the discussion, at least in Austria. But not really much has happened, I believe. I haven't really also seen much resonance in the public about this. So, yeah, I mean, this was, I mean, compared to Estonia, this was really nothing. But also with respect to Estonia, this was already a highly digitalized country. They they used a lot of the, the government systems was already, you know, fully digitalized. And this is not something that we have. Oh, I, I would assume, I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, maybe something else, maybe there, there would have to be some kind of grassroots organization that would have to take this role and start organizing something. I mean, at the moment, we're currently, I mean, I'm trying to set up a network in Austria with other Austrian academics on this issue. And anyone who is Austrian and who's listening to this podcast is highly welcome to reach out to me. Maybe that would be another great opportunity for, for you know, at least the academics in an interdisciplinary way, or not even academics, also politicians and those who work on this issue, who deal with cyber on a, on a daily basis to come together and to kind of get connected, that could maybe also be something valuable.
One thing that also came up in our meeting is how deterrence works maybe differently from deterrence in, with other weapons, right? So, for example, what would probably deter an attack more than having offensive cyber capabilities might be a hub for very skilled IT experts or something like that. You would look less vulnerable to potential attackers. Uh, what's your take on that? How does, does deterrence work in the cybersphere? If so, how does it maybe work differently? I mean, yeah, this whole subject of deterrence is really widely debated uh, with respect to cyber. There, I think there's a huge debate of whether cyber deterrence actually works. So I think there are a lot of people who would say that it doesn't. And you can see it, I mean... Even though we've had reactions to a cyber operation, these cyber operations are still taking place and uh, they're actually increasing and they're increasing against also medical facilities and critical infrastructure, et cetera. So, so at least what you can say is the, the methods that we're currently using do not seem to be highly effective, as we've also discussed before. So how it could work differently, I, I like your approach. Um, I think... What would definitely be what I think is of most crucial importance, and that is also something that also has been discussed at the UN level, is to amp up the capacities within the states, to increase cooperation between states, to help you know weaker states to get better in their cybersecurity, to get better in detecting malware, in you know installing firewalls knowing how to react to phishing attacks, et cetera. Um, just these you know, basic things to increase those in all states would, I think, definitely help to make um, things more secure. But obviously, this does not deter criminals from, from um, doing their attacks. This might even lead to them becoming even more sophisticated. But I think this is, this is why you have to become uh, you know, better than, better than the bad ones in trying to amp up your security and work together, increase cooperation in order to actually um, be able to at least fend these off through good cybersecurity mechanisms. Yeah, and one could add this is not basically development aid. We're trading with a lot of uh, countries that are weaker in cybersecurity than uh, European Union states all but yeah well and as we have seen with malware attacks on uh, that happened in the past mm -hmm. you could basically see the companies that were trading together passing the malware on to other countries so even if it's not a country of the european union or a country that we're usually yeah. very connected to politically if we have a lot of uh, trade interests there somehow it's still in our interest to help it's not development aid it's self-protection yeah that, that is correct. And that definitely helps at least with respect to criminal actors. So non-state actors that are not entirely sponsored by states. States themselves are conducting cyber operations. That is an entirely different issue. But yeah. One thing that I wanted to ask about, because now we've talked a bit about the public perception of these issues. I have a question about the more political angle that is brought to it. Because last uh, or in April, you joined us for a meeting with our liberal defense experts. And most of these people there in the room, they work on, so they advise their parties or their political groups of their parties on security issues. And a lot of them also work on cyber, cybersecurity or cyber defense. But they think about these topics in very different ways, of course. It's not always the legal aspects which are central in their work. What did you think about the way they think or they approach these issues? Is that very different from the way you look at them? What did you see were the main differences there or what kind of stood out for you? 
Well, I think there were definitely commonalities as in that we all think about what we could make better, what we could improve with respect to cybersecurity, how we could prevent major cyber incidents to occur and what is important to do that. I mean, I'm looking at this in a, from a legal perspective and I'm just interested in what they do, but I'm not entirely, you know, I'm not as invested, I, was, I would say, as politicians or political advisors in this issue because this truly affects you know, that state, and I'm just interested in analyzing this this whole issue. What I, what struck me maybe, or what I what found great was there was a huge interest in how international law works and what international law has to say. And I would say maybe that surprised me that for some, it was interesting that to see that for some international law, that the somewhat maybe perhaps a bit surprised that international law has a say at all. <laughs> But I mean, maybe that that didn't. Nobody said that. I think in like explicitly. But I had the impression that I sometimes have to advocate that there is something like international law and that we have rules and that you can use them because they, in from the outer perspective, you know, they're not relying on international law per se. I mean, they're saying sometimes that something is that states should act in accordance with international law, but that is the ultimate thing that they say. They do not really address actual rules, and I think that makes it more difficult for also those who are invested in this issue to talk about and to think about international law because it is not being fully addressed or openly addressed. International law needs the support of the states, right? And the lower the confidence in international law, the less effective it is, basically. We have rules, but if no one applies them, uh, no one sanctions violations, which is something that uh, wouldn't happen in, on a national level of national law with most things that you can do that are not allowed, right? You would be sanctioned. But on an international level, I mean, we have made the experience that a lot of stuff is going yeah. on that is not legal from an international law point of view and nothing really happened or at least nothing happened that you would imagine to happen in such a case. A lot of things that happen we don't see because, as I said before, uh, diplomatic channels, you know, not everything is visible to the public. So that, that is so true. International law really works with states adhering to it. And if they don't, then this makes it, of course, even... It, that doesn't mean that it is not relevant. It is extremely relevant. And you can see that states want to rely on international law by justifying their actions for some reason. But with respect to cyber, this is getting even a bit more complicated because a lot of these things are confidential and they do not want to you know, put them out there. This is also kind of touches on, on the question of what we can do if it's not directly fighting off uh, malicious attacks. We talk, We also talked in the meeting about the fact that even among allies, be it within NATO or the European Union, we haven't really established our own standards for, for what is okay and what isn't. So there was the example of if the US would take out a server on European territory without prior notification, this would also be a violation of sovereignty, you could argue. But just imagine it the other way around. Uh, I don't know. The French military takes out a server uh, on U.S. territory without prior notification and what the political situation might look like then. So in order to strengthen international frameworks and standards, we also have to get clear on that among our own allies, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say in both ways, this would be <laughs> illegal <laughs> if you actually take out the server because that would make it inoperable. And then you can definitely argue that this is not okay. 
And then for that, you would definitely need a, a prior notification at least to get the consent of the state. Or if it is a countermeasure, you would also have to notify beforehand. So that, that would be the general rule, yeah. There's an interesting case. Recently, there was a new dynamic there with the, the NSA hacking phones of German government officials, including Angela Merkel, with help from the Danish intelligence service. I think that's an interesting example what happens there also about those kind of standards internally because they apparently they're not they're not there they're not developed and it's quite difficult to have those standards towards other actors among allies if we uh, already don't don't have them there yeah that is so true but i mean this concerns espionage and here i mean international law there is definitely not a clear line as to what is allowed and what is not allowed and that is definitely an issue But I should truly appreciate the frequent statements that are being made by those that have been spied upon that, you know, allies or friends do not spy on friends. And maybe this, this statement kind of maybe hopefully reinforces the fact that if you are in a friendly cooperation with each other, for example, within the European Union, that you could definitely set up a standard that you do not spy on each other. But in reality, I'm pretty sure that a lot of spying is going on without anyone telling, you know, saying it openly and these revelations just make it even more clear that there's a huge hypocrisy going on of states you know saying that they're friends but actually spying on each other for other purposes yeah yeah i was talking about it with teresa already before as well because what we were thinking of is that if actors like the nsa find a way in and can spy on allies that also means that that possibility also exists for other actors maybe with more malign uh, intentions I think from that point of view, it would also be interesting because there's also a certain responsibility, I would say, towards your allies to warn them in case their uh, systems are, are compromised and in case others can uh, can commit an attack in their systems. What do you think about that? Is there a certain responsibility to inform others as well? Does that exist? Is that is that a legal, is there any legal basis for that? Yeah, so you can put that into the so-called due diligence obligation, which is uh, the obligation that I was referring to before, that states should not knowingly allow their territory to be used for internationally wrongful acts. So they know, for example, that uh, someone is compromising their own systems um, to spy on another state, then you could perhaps argue that the state should actually contact the other state that something is going on. But With respect to cyber, I mean, this is this is an obligation that was voiced by the International Court of Justice in 1949. It was obviously relating to a traditional conflict and not cyber conflict. But with respect to cyber, uh, as I said before, states are a little bit more reluctant to make this an actual obligation because that would mean that they would have to monitor their own systems on a continuous basis and truly find out whether anything is compromising another state. But that's why I think we're working with commitments that at least states should feel uh, obliged as soon as they discover that something is going on in their own territory that could harm another state, that they perhaps do something to that. But then, of course, you also have to take into account that this only relates to internationally wrongful acts and whether espionage is already a violation is debatable. But definitely merit in saying if you find out If the European Union is willing to set new standards and to say, well, we do not want spying, for example, to occur, then they can definitely do that and say, well, if we want to support each other in 
defending or defending our systems and, and preventing other states to spy on us. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there is a loose structure for that and uh, countries uh, often voluntarily do it because it's also in their own interest that the servers of the neighbor countries are, are not somehow affected. But like with espionage and European intelligence, the cooperation has its limits, right? So states, even within the European Union, even within NATO, still don't trust enough trusted each other enough to actually share this level of secret information with each other. And that's a more of a cooperation in general problem, I think. It's not really a cyber problem. It's it's trust and, and confidence problem in international cooperation and structures. But, I mean, I can say from previous experience that certain intelligence cooperation mechanisms do work. So, there are certain, you know, states do send each other information on certain things happening. And even if we do not see them in public, we could still be sure that something is going on. But it would, of course, be great if we had a public commitment to help each other and to cooperate in this, in this context. How, if with these stories, when they pop up in the news, what kind of aspects of it do you pay attention to from a legal point of view? So, for instance, this, well, maybe the NSA example is not the, not the best ones, but any kind of cyber attack that pops up, solar winds, perhaps, how do you look at that? Are there certain aspects that you focus on and how should we look at those kind of incidents through a cyber lens? I mean, usually since I'm, as my PhD thesis is also focusing on attribution and evidentiary questions, my always first reaction is always to see who has done it or if there are any public information available that can say who was behind the operation. Usually sometimes newspapers have connections to government officials who then say something like, okay, yeah, they did it. So that is my first actual reaction. And then usually I'm also interested in what type of operation this was. So was this, did it actually have any effects? Uh, what effects were they? Were they economic effects or were they actual physical effects? For example, there was one extremely worrisome incident against a medical facility in Germany where then ultimately one, I think one person died. This actually, I mean, this was, I would say, a remarkable incident that has not really been discussed that much in the news. And that also opens up questions of, was this a violation of international law? I mean, here again, we have the question, the difficulty of attribution, because I'm not sure if it actually was attributed to, to a state. I actually don't think so. It was actually just conducted, I think, by cyber criminals. And here you have other questions that are related to international law, which are important. Yeah, but also here you can say like a public debate would definitely help. I mean, people just don't get killed in the street and nobody ever talks about it anymore, right? So there is a double standard here somehow, like as if it was like a higher power or something. Uh, but it isn't, it's yeah. man-made. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So this was our conversation with Isabella. Uh, thank you again, Isabella, for joining us today. In our next episode, we are going to talk about the recent NATO summit and what were the major outcomes and where to go from here. As usual, if you like this podcast, please make sure to share it with your friends on social media and tell everyone about it. And if you have any feedback, please let us know, drop us an email, and we will hear you next time. Talk to you next time. Bye. Ciao.